extend a warm welcome to our visitors that are amongst us and brethren that have been gone for a time and are now back with us. And those that are regularly here, let the blessing of God be upon us all. I invite you this morning, sure I'm being recorded here. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to an Old Testament book. That is the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets with a major message. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Maybe this is a book you haven't heard much preaching from. I know in my Christian experience of some 40 years, I don't know if I've ever heard a message, or I certainly don't remember one, and I doubt that I ever heard an exposition of this book, and so it's with a bit of fear and trepidation that we're going to launch out in a study of this brief but powerful book. Please follow with me as I read the first 48 verses of the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. For Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice, for thou hadst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land, the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, <coughs> a three days walk, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, 
Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. <clears throat> but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a righteous and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade for his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God pointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? I think even preaching from this is an attempt to gild the lily. It's so powerful. <clears throat> We're going to answer some questions this morning in preparation for our study of Jonah. <clears throat> the first question is this. Why study Jonah? Well, we don't have to look far to answer this question. The Bible gives us <clears throat> a general answer and it gives us a specific answer to why we should study Jonah. Well, the general answer 
that the Bible gives is this. Studying Jonah is promised to be spiritually profitable. We have general texts in the scripture that point to this fact. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture, Jonah is scripture. And in fact, when Paul wrote this, he had particularly the Old Testament in mind because New Testament scripture was being written. In fact, his words are part of that. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, to show us what we need to know, for reproof, to show us where we're wrong, for correction, to get us back on the right path, for training in righteousness, how to live pleasing before God. That the man of God, not just Timothy, but by extension to all Christians, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We need to study Jonah to be adequate, to be prepared for every good work. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of thy words gives light. Indeed, we walk in darkness. We need the light and lamp. We need the word of God. It gives understanding to the simple, to the naive. We're all simple. I don't care how many degrees we have after our name or if we have no degrees all of us are simple. We need to be instructed so that we might be mature Christians. Romans 15 and verse 4. Paul makes this wonderful statement. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. There's instruction again. Well, what's the purpose? What's the outcome of instruction? That through perseverance... We need instruction that we might persevere in the way and the encouragement of the scriptures. We read that this morning in the sixth chapter of Hebrews. Encourage that we have a God who doesn't lie, who keeps his word. He swears upon his own self that he's going to keep his promises. That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Indeed, before God saved us, we were without God and without hope in, in this world. And now we have a hope, a living hope, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So that's the general answer. <clears throat> Studying Jonah promises to be spiritually profitable. The specific answer the Bible gives is that our Savior speaks of Jonah. Jesus suggests that we should study the book of Jonah because it presents us with a crucial message about himself as our Savior and about ourselves as sinners. As sinners, we need a Savior. We should study the book of Jonah because it is as practical as it is interesting. We will ponder several vital matters about our Lord and ourselves as we study this book of Jonah. Second question, who was Jonah? Well, brethren, it's foundational that we understand that Jonah was a historical figure, a real person. He hailed from a small, obscure town called Gath Hefer, not far from Nazareth, located in Israel's northern kingdom in the region of Zebulun, west of the Sea of Galilee. 2 Kings 14, which we're going to look at in a little bit. 
records that Jonah prophesied during the 41-year reign of King Jeroboam II. Jonah's name means a dove. That name seems well-suited to express the prophet's brooding temperament as well as his readiness to fly away. Amittai, his father's name, means the God of truth. It may well be that this name was given to Jonah's father because he loved and he owned God's truth, that he embraced the teaching of the true prophets during the day of much false prophecy and apostate religion. Whatever the case, Jonah seems to have been raised by a father that was known for his commitment to God's truth. Every one of you children that has a father and or a mother committed to the truth of God, you're blessed beyond words to be raised in a home that exalts the word of God, that follows Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Son of God. You have an inestimable, inestimable blessing in that regard. A great Puritan divine has wisely said, I would that truth were every preacher's father. And that was true of Jonah's father, figuratively and factually. And it places no small bearing upon our story that Jonah had such a father. Thirdly, is the book of Jonah a true story? Skeptics, of which there are many, doubt that Jonah ever really existed. But most people who have heard of Jonah regard this book as a charming fictional story about a man that was swallowed by a whale. They know it no further than that. In fact, if we did a word correspondence game, we would hear... Here we would say Adam and Eve, right? Noah and the ark. David and Goliath. Jonah and the whale. But many reject Jonah as a fact because they reject the possibility of the miraculous which is sprinkled throughout this book, beginning with the storm that God hurled from heaven and the whale or the great fish that swallowed Jonah and then spat him out on the beach. About the repentance of the people. About the appointment of a plant and then of a worm and a wind. Some have tried to rescue Jonah from the miraculous by appealing to accounts of people that have been swallowed by fish and some of whom have even survived. Brethren, this is a story about the supernatural. We don't need human explanations to make it palatable. And to those who reject Jonah as historical, people that doubt the possibility that a large city like Nineveh could ever be brought to universal repentance like Nineveh was. 
So many, even some who call themselves Christians, dismiss the historicity of the book of Jonah. And of these, many regard Jonah just as an allegory. Didn't really happen. It's just a nice story. It's a parable in which Jonah stands for this and the fish for that, and the Ninevites for something else, and the sailors on the ship for yet some other thing. It's not historical. Brethren, let us understand that we are not free to deny the plain teaching of Scripture like that and call ourselves Christians. We cannot reject the Bible's recorded miracles and still hold to an inspired, authoritative Bible. What did the apostles teach about the nature of Scripture? Well, Paul teaches in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is inspired. Theonustos, God breathed. We would say, we say inspired, really, it's expired. He breathed it out. The product of inspiration is an, an inerrant, authoritative word from God. Peter teaches that the process of inspiration is the work of the Spirit of God in bearing along its human authors to produce, though using their own vocabulary, exactly what the Spirit led them to write. We believe in plenary inspiration, that all of the Bible is inspired. We also believe in verbal inspiration, right down to the words themselves and the syllables, all of that, using the writer's own vocabulary to produce exactly what the Spirit had inspired them to write. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through chapter 2 and verse 2. But know first of all, know this first of all, Peter says, this is of a primary importance, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, that is, loosing it actually from yourself. It comes from you. You've given birth to it yourself. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And we would say wrote from God. Two conclusions may be drawn from Peter's statement. First, the wills of the human authors of the Bible though active in writing, were under the leading of the Holy Spirit to exactly express God's will in what they wrote. They didn't say anything more. They didn't say anything less. They didn't say anything differently than what God had them write exactly. This is not dictation. This is supernatural. Uh, inspiration. Oh, some things were exactly dictated. But many things reflect plainly the vocabulary of Peter, Paul, James. They, they wrote differently. You can tell they're different authors. But they all had one superintending author, and that's the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, we may say that the Bible was written by men, and we may equally say that the Bible was written by God. Holy men inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote the Holy Bible. Second, we need, this is implied, we need the illumination of the same Holy Spirit to rightly understand the holy words recorded by these holy men. The Spirit that inspired it must illumine our minds to understand it. 
It's in his light that we see light. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And notice that Peter's plain follows his plain statement of the Bible's inspiration with a sobering warning against giving heed to false teachers that reject the truth with their destructive heresies. Not only were there true prophets in old times who spoke and wrote the truth, but notice what Peter says, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will who will secretly introduce destructive heresies they don't come right out and tell you that these are heretical truths this is false doctrine they secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves that's the teacher. What about the hearer? And many will follow their sensuality. Paul speaks about in the latter days, people will heap up teachers to themselves in accord with their own what? With their own lusts. People will go to hear teachers that will stroke them in the midst of their disobedience and rebellion against God and say, what you're doing is just fine. You have Christian liberty to live this way. And many will follow their sensuality. You have your best life now. Why not live it to the fullest? And because of them, these teachers, the way of the truth will be maligned, evil spoken against. You actually believe that the Bible's inspired? Oh, come on now, we're in the 21st century. Men know better than that now. We've got more light. Oh, now they're running into increasing darkness. Beware of men, darkened men who call their darkness light. That's some newfangled teaching. Brethren, there's a crucial word here for us. We must be discerning as well as believing Bible students. False teachers abound. They always have, they always will. And let us never think lightly of error. Heresies are not harmless. You are what you eat. We eat the truth, we grow strong in the truth. We eat error, we will break down morally and spiritually. Heresies are not harmless. They're dangerous and they're destructive. They're deadly because they deny some aspect of inspired truth. We are to be believers, not doubters. We're to be followers, not deniers. We must know and believe only the truth and all of the truth. We must guard the truth. We must contend for the truth. We must live the truth. We must love the truth. We must never deny the truth. And that truth is found only in Jesus and only in his word. Jesus and his great high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. What did he pray to the Father? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. 
All of it. And therefore, let us ask ourselves, did the Lord believe that Jonah was actual history? Did he believe that Jonah was a real person and all that's written in Jonah actually happened? Well, from the writings of his apostles, we must answer in the affirmative. Their teaching in the book of Acts and their epistles, they continue to teach the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus believed the Bible. Well, remember first that our Lord often quoted the Old Testament and he believed all of it to be true. He clearly regarded it as historical and all the events as actually happening as written. How important this is, we will see later. If we do not regard Jonah as historical fact, we have a serious problem with our view of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that later. Addressing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and his own words, Jesus plainly stated, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished, Matthew 5, 18. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And he said in chapter 10, verse 35 of John, the scripture cannot be broken. It is impregnable. It is inviolable. It is the breath of God. Notice further that our Lord spoke specifically of Jonah and how the prophet's experience points forward to himself, how Jonah's time in the belly of the great fish prefigured his time in the tomb and how the prophet's ejection from the fish pointed to his resurrection from the grave. If you don't believe that Jonah is historical, should we believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was historical? The truth and historicity of the one demands the truth and historicity of the other. Jesus also teaches that Jonah's preaching and the people's response in repentance points to our need to repent as we hear the word of the Lord Jesus. Luke 11, verses 30 and 32. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now we'll consider these truths more in depth as we come to them in our study of this precious book. Fourth question. What were the spiritual conditions in Israel during the time of Jonah? Well, Jonah prophesied before or during, during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Halfway, essentially, between the division of the kingdom into the north and south of the death of Solomon and the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. <clears throat> this was a time in the northern kingdom of 
political expansion, something of renewal going on. But it's also a time of moral degradation. 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, not the same Jeroboam earlier, he's named after Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, his namesake, the son of Nebat. Remember, he's the one that, that made the, the calves, put one in the north and one in the south, made his own fake priesthood with his own worship system. So that's his character and conduct. He followed his namesake. He didn't destroy the calves. He only encouraged their worship. Verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, that's up in the north, as far as the Sea of Arabah or the desert down in the south, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. So Jonah, the book of Jonah is not the first time Jonah appears in the pages of scripture. We find him here in this somewhat obscure passage in 2 Kings. Brethren, the success of the second Jeroboam's rule was not due to the king's merit, but according to God's mercy. Not because of Jeroboam's righteousness, but in spite of his wickedness. Understand that political and material prosperity is no sure sign of God's pleasure, but may actually be an indication that God is ripening a wicked people for judgment. I fear we see signs around us of the same. Amos, Jonah's contemporary in Judah to the south, was dispatched to the wayward northern tribes of Israel with a message of impending judgment for their continued crimes against their countrymen and their rebellion against God. Amos 2, verses 6 through Eight, and then chapter 6 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money. They make merchandise of God's people, true people, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They sell them just to get something to cover their feet. They mistreat them. They ex exploit them and abuse them. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. They seek to corrupt the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl, temple prostitute, in order to profane my holy name and on garments 
taken as pledges. They stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Just drunkenness and debauchery, all kinds of immorality. Chapter 6 and verse 6, he speaks of those who drink wine from sacrificial bowls. You say the Babylonians did that. These are God's supposed people. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls. Maybe these are bowls that are used for sacrifice to other gods. While they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. And here's the bottom line. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They're kicking up their heels and they're living the life of Riley. And they're running down the pathway of rebellion against God, which is only going to lead to nothing good. And they weren't grieved over the impact of their example upon their brethren. Joseph was going to hell in a handbasket, we would say, and they didn't give a rip. Hosea, also a contemporary and neighbor of Jonah in the, in the north, was dispatched by God to address a similar spiritual and moral decay happening in the south in Judah. A thin veneer of religion characterized Judah's national life, a nation that was instead morally corrupt at its core. Hosea 4, verses 12 through 14. My people consult their wooden idol and that their diviner's wand informs them. They followed the spirit of darkness. <clears throat> Notice, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. These winking gods who hike up their skirt, who promise them much and give them nothing. has led them astray and they have played the harlot, notice, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery, notice where the, where the responsibility rests for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. And what's the end of it? So the people without understanding are ruined. There was a famine for the hearing of the word of God. They gouged out their eyes and they ran with glee into darkness. God's patience with the wicked northern kingdom was wearing thin during the reign of Jeroboam II. Assyria to the north and east increased in military might during these days. And within a generation, Assyria would flex its muscles by sending troops into Judah to intimidate King Hezekiah. And after a long period of unrest with several short kings reigning with murderous intrigue, 
in Israel, Assyria would finally invade the northern tribes and cart them off captive and repopulate their land with foreigners. 721. You see, the Assyrian time bomb was ticking in Jonah's day. Just what Jonah knew of God's coming invasion through the Assyrians and of the deportation of his people, we can't know for sure. But this we do know. God kept his prophets abreast of his plans to judge before he sent his punishments. We see this in the case of Abraham. Abraham spoke to, or God spoke to Abraham what he was going to do to Sodom. We have this general truth stated in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. What a statement that is. Helps us see a little bit more about what they knew. Could it be that God had revealed to Jonah how the Ninevites would respond to his preaching? A response that displeased him, that decided his rejection of God's commission? Now, we can't answer this one way or the other for sure. But one thing we do know that Jonah knew, Jonah was acquainted with God's character and his conduct through the hundreds of years that preceded him in his treatment of, of Israel. Of his, of his patience with his own people, during the wilderness wanderings, during the period of the judges, and even up to that very present point. He knew that Jehovah was a God of mercy, no less than a God of judgment, who delighted in men's repentance. So what is Jonah's message before we come to a couple words of application? Jonah's message is as broad as it is pointed. Powerful is the prophet's word to us and practical. Certainly we'll see these things as we continue our study. We are confronted with our own reluctance to obey God's revealed will and our shameless dodges, deviations, and excuses to defend our disobedience. If you can't say amen, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but if you can't say it in your heart, I wonder if you're a true Christian with the remnants of sin yet raging in you at times powerfully to say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And we are faced with our own entrenched hostility and hard-heartedness toward those we deem our enemies and our own unwillingness to reach them with the message of the gospel. Jonah is alive and well, his spirit today. Further, we are presented with an arresting display of God's redeeming love for those whom we may regard as reprobate and may think beyond the reach of God's mercy. See, we don't think like God. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. We're out of sync with the thinking of God. Of 
Furthermore, we see an incredible display of God's patience with his people, even when they are living in shameful rebellion against him. He's going to deal with them, but he's patient with them. Further, we witness God's willingness to use whatever means he deems necessary to bring us to see our own sin and to turn back to him in new obedience. He that began that good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If he has to reel us in, he'll use whatever means necessary to bring us back to himself. Finally, we behold the amazing power of God's preached word in bringing even the most hardened and unlikely sinners to repentance. God's grace is greater than all of our sins and his word as a means of grace is greater than our rebellion and he'll reach out and he'll snatch sinners as brands from the burning, take them to himself. He'll rescue sinners and bring them to himself. He will bring those who are least likely and be thought of as beyond the pale of God's reach. He'll bring them to repentance. Maybe that's your testimony. Certainly mine. Abiding message. Just two words of closing application. First of all, the word of God and the son of God teach us that we must regard the events recorded in the book of Jonah as historical fact. Brethren, if Jonah is not historical fact, then we have a huge problem. And I'm not referring to what our unbelief says about our own spiritual condition before God. That's another issue. Brethren, I'm referring to Jesus. If Jonah is not historical fact, Jesus cannot be our Savior. What do I mean? Well, to qualify as our Savior, Jesus is not free to be mistaken, much less to knowingly present as fact what he knew to be fiction. You can't be sinless and deal with us that way. You can't deal with the word of God that way and be God's son. To be the living word. To qualify as our Savior, Jesus is not free to be mistaken, much less to knowingly present as fact what he knew to be fiction. We need a sacrifice for sin who is both omniscient as God and sinless as man. Jesus declared Jonah to be a real person who spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. In the same way our Lord predicted that he would spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah's being swallowed by the great fish and entombment in its belly and then being regurgitated alive point to our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. So our Lord Jesus rose after three days, being entombed in the earth. He came forth from the grave victorious over death, over sin, over Satan. Jonah was a type, you see. He pointed forward to Jesus. He's the great anti-type. He's the greater than Jonah that is here. Jonah was a son of his father whose name 
means truth. Jesus is truth incarnate, son of the God of truth, who indeed is the way, the truth, and the life for all who come to the Father through him. We must believe Jesus to be what the Bible says, or we will die in our sins. We're not free to pick and choose what we're going to believe from the scriptures. Jesus didn't. He believed it all. He says, we must believe it all. Thy word is truth. I'm afraid some professing Christians, they got the smorgasbord mentality. They come to the Bible and they'll take what they want and leave what they don't want. We had a young man living with us for a while and he left a, a button on the wall. He said, the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. Scriptures are not multiple choice. You can't take what you want and leave what you don't want. It's a seamless whole. Jesus teaches that Jonah preached against the sin of Nineveh and the city repented. Jesus is the greater than Jonah who is calling each one of us to repentance. And brethren, we're going to see that that wicked city repented en masse. Jesus calls us to turn from our sin from the wrath of God. So let me ask you this morning. Have you turned from your sin to the greater than Jonah? Have you turned to Jesus Christ, the only Savior whose resurrection from the dead proves that he has the power to save all those who come to God through him? Have you believed him? If you haven't, you're still in your sins and under the wrath of God. If God saved the repentant Ninevites, he can and will save you too if you come to him through Jesus Christ. Finally, the spiritual condition of our nation, of Christ's church, and of ourselves is in desperate need of revival from the Lord. Brethren, we're going to see that it wasn't just the gross sins of pagan Nineveh that begged a visitation of God's wrath. To whom much is given, much is required. They had no light. The light came and they embraced it. We have much light. It's all around us. But do we walk around with our fingers over our eyes, blinkers that we just don't want to see? Israel, God's elect nation, lived in shameless rebellion against the one whom they called their God. Her crimes against Jehovah were more egregious than those of the pagan nation. She was privileged with God's written revelation, with the warnings of God's prophets to return to the Lord, but she willingly chose to reject truth and grace. God is patient and he is long-suffering, bless his name. But there comes an end to his patience. Read your Bibles. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Jonah, God's own prophet, refused to obey God's commission and instead attempted to run away from him. Brethren, Jonah teaches us that there is plenty enough guilt to go around if we have eyes to look into our own hearts. What sin are you playing with? 
What are you toying with that may be the means of your own destruction? What is God saying do and you're saying no? Or saying no and you're saying yes? Brethren, there's no place for us to hide from God. Jonah knew that God saves all who turn from their sin to him. Didn't he say that? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah needed to learn that lesson again himself. Indeed, he needed it to learn, learn it again himself so he was properly prepared to preach it to others. Let me say to you in closing, if you're wandering from God, even by small degrees, or if you're running pell-mell away from it as fast as your feet can take you, this God is calling you to return to him. And if you return to him, however far you've strained, he will have mercy upon you. He will. We have that promise. It's written in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's sealed with an oath, an oath from a God who cannot lie. Now may God speak to us this morning according to our several needs. He knows our hearts and he knows our ways. May we know his grace. Let's pray. Lord Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us. Many of us have received initial mercy. Oh, even before we were saved, you were merciful to us. You didn't let us die in our sins. You had chosen us before the foundation of the world and you put up with so much from us. And then you exercised your power. You swept us into your kingdom by your righteous right arm. You granted us the gifts of faith and repentance. You're more and more making us into the image of Christ. But Lord, we see our own sin. Make it to be foul to us. That we would say, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Oh, my, our feet walk down, indeed run toward Christ upon the well-beaten path to the cross to seek fresh forgiveness and mercy to give us help in time of need. And for those here who don't know the Lord, who need to come to know the God of Jonah, indeed Jesus Christ, we pray that you would open their eyes to see their sin and to see that there is a Jesus Christ that was sent into this world, dead, buried, resurrected, seated at your right hand, who calls them to repentance. Lord, you who call them to repentance, grant them the grace of repentance. You who are now the object of their doubt, make them the object of their, of their faith. Grant them belief in himself. Lord, hear us according to our several needs. Ultimately, not just for our own benefit, as blessed as that is, but that your glory would redound through your kindness to such unworthy sinners as us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.